0: Well, as we start, I want to ask a very simple question. And that is the following. What have you prayed for that has been off the charts that's come true? Something that you have prayed for, and it was a real stretch of faith, and it came true. Just think about that for a moment. Okay? Something you've prayed for was a huge stretch of faith and it came true and it invigorated you. I remember back when I was a youth pastor that we went up for a winter camp at Hume Lake and we had two students go with us that we really didn't know a whole lot about. But we knew that they didn't have faith in Christ yet. We knew that they didn't know or understand the love of Jesus yet. And so we really encouraged our student leaders to be praying for these individuals and to share the love of Christ with these individuals. And the very first night, this one uh, um, individual, the the guy, there was a guy and a gal, the guy accepted Christ. and, And the students were just inspired. And so they came up with this little PFL, and I kept hearing it over the next day and a half. PFL. PFL. I think they started throwing up some gang signs secretly. You know, PFL. And I'm, Finally, I'm like, what is PFL? I mean, I know that I don't know all things. I'm not omniscient when it comes to the culture of teenager um, language and vernacular. But what is PFL? PFL was Pray for Lisa. And that was this gal who struggled in her home life. Had a a home situation that was was desperately horrible. And here she was in the midst of this opportunity to hear about Christ and the love of Jesus Christ. And our students started praying radical prayers that the Lord would get a hold of her, that the Lord would reveal Himself to her, that, that the love of Christ and nothing else but the love of Christ would show through. And they just kept saying, P.F.L., P.F.L. And without any of these individuals specifically intervening in conversation, Lisa approached myself by the end of the camp and said, I cannot ignore what I'm seeing. I cannot ignore what I'm hearing. I have to know this Jesus. I've been fighting it all weekend. But it, is, it has so grabbed a hold of me. I need to know who this Jesus is. And it inspired my students. Are you kidding me? We prayed that someone would come into faith with Jesus Christ. And it happened. Now, what was that thing you prayed for? It was so impossible and yet it came true beyond that more importantly well i wouldn't say more importantly but let me just ask this question in your process of trying to remember that how many of you non-rhetorical question i would love to see a showing of hands how many of you thought of all the prayers you did pray that didn't come true Raise your hand if that happened in that experience. Happened to me. Anybody else? One, two, three, four. Some of you. Yeah. When Kathy Eiching had her stroke, she was recovered 100%. No, nothing. Yeah yes praise god praise god now i'm going to throw a wet towel on that i love kathy and and but we have somebody from our congregation that had a massive stroke and they're still currently months after they're still just barely able to talk there's been no 100 percent recovery and there's been just as much prayer for Sig Kerr as there was for Kathy Isham. So what? here's the elephant, folks. What do we do? What do we do with that? So let's look at the Scripture this morning. And as we look at it, the, the title of today's sermon is, The Problem with Prayer. Have we done a good enough job? Thank you, Roger, for mentioning that because that just... That set the stage for exactly what we have to see here in the text. And then how do we live under a a graceful God, a a giving God, a loving God, a God that said, seek me, ask, and it will be given unto you, right? Knock and the door shall be what? Let's see if we all know this. Open. Open. We know this, right? And yet, how many of us hide these things away that we really want to see God work, but We're just going to convince ourselves our pragmatic self is telling us it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Do you know that the early church struggled with this very thing? And today we get to explore what did they do? And what did God do? And we're going to get our heads and hearts wrapped around this whole idea of prayer for the purpose of invigorating us to pray to pray the way Christ has asked us to pray. And by the end of of this message, my prayer is that we're inspired to pray deeper, we're inspired to pray more often, and we're we're inspired to pray with great faith. Amen? All right, let's see what happens here. So we're in the text, we're talking about the unspoken problem with prayer today. And this is a concept or a thought that I want to run by you. The problem with prayer is that it requires trust and recognition that ultimately we are not in control. Is that fair to say? That's the problem with prayer. Because all day long, how many of you were out of control driving here today? I don't want to see your hand. If you really were. (laughs) So you're like, did you see me driving today? No, hopefully you were in control. How many of you were in control of putting your clothes on? Hopefully all of you. We live in a day where we just constantly are in control. So this concept is antithetical, isn't it? Let's turn all control over to something we cannot touch. We cannot directly hear from specifically or explicitly. And we're going to give empirical trust to God well let's see what the early church did how fun is this we don't we have our own story but we get to look at the story of how it happened back then and learn from the real dynamics of what was going on so let's start in verse 1 chapter 12 we're in chapter 12 today and and you've seen a lot happen you've seen uh, the new Gentile church get established, um, and the the church leadership accept that and see all that is going on there. And so now we switch gears. This is kind of like as Luke is telling the story, he's kind of completed this past thought over the past two chapters, and now what he wants to do is he wants to relate to you another part of the story. And I hate to tell you, we're right back to persecution. We are right back to persecution. So let's look at these first five verses if we can. It says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. It was part of the feast. And when he had seized him... He put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Maybe a little heavy on the guarding, right? Uh, Let's let's really make sure, you know, we put like a couple guys over the tomb. That didn't work out so well. I'm not making the same mistake my cousin made. I'm putting four squads over this guy Peter. He's real impulsive. There's no knowing what he's going to do. And it says, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Do you know what that means? That means he's going to suffer the same plight James just suffered. He's going to bring him out to the people after Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. And here we go. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. All right. What's our situation? Well, we've got an evil king. Anybody, can we relate to that idea? And let's just jump into it with the problem with politics. All right? Are we going to talk politics? No, not current ones. We're going to talk about them from back in the day. Herod Agrippa and his family had issues. By the way, you have sermon notes. We are back into it, so you got fill in the blank there, folks. And on the flip side, you've got a much more in-depth study on this sermon in life groups. Shameless plug for life groups. They start this week. Join. Jump in. As you exit today, you can sign up for a life group. Mine starts tomorrow night. I'm very excited. We cleaned the house just for you. So Herod Agrippa had family issues. Paranoia. God complex. They were murderers. They were just evil people. Evil people. And I'll give you a breakdown of this in a minute, but what do we see from the text that we just looked at? That James is put under the sword. Do you know what this means? It literally means he was brought out and he was beheaded in front of the people. This was kind of a typical thing. Uh, Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa's grandfather, and we'll give you a little snapshot of the evil family tree here in a minute. Herod the Great was the one that killed all those boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. He also was infamous for killing hundreds of Jews because he was paranoid that those people, the Jewish people, were going to rise up against him, and so he was tyrannical. So the way that he approached government was, if I kill enough of their leadership and do it publicly in a massacre, they don't dare defy me. And so he just brought out all these... You wonder why? We always talk about how the Jewish people thought Christ, the Messiah, would free them from the tyranny of Rome. Now you start to understand what was going on under the Herod's. So kind of fascinating. So what happens? We have this reprieve of persecution. Who was the first martyr that we have in Jerusalem amongst the believers of the church? We go back to chapter 7. Stephen. Yes, I am qualified as a teacher. I feel so good now. Stephen was the first one. And then that persecution forced the leadership to move out from Jerusalem. And then there were believers that happened uh, in in uh, in Samaria, and then we have the situation with Peter that he left Joppa and went up to Caesarea, a, 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 a Roman province. It's it's where the Herods, where the leaders would would be. Um, it was a it was a uh, uh, major major port city on the coast. And so, what happens in, in this? Well, then you have the conversion of a Roman centurion, the first italian church planter right and we see this start to happen and peter comes back and church leadership in jerusalem is what are you doing this is for the jews and and peter says what he says god has no what does anybody remember It was the title of our sermon a few weeks ago with god there is no starts with a p stop mumbling What was it? Thank you! Partiality! You know why I had you do that? I got the word preference stuck in my head and I knew that was wrong. So I had to keep having you say it till you got it right. And then I could get it right. So thank you. Um, I'm very vulnerable right now. Under God, there is no partiality. And so the, the whole Jewish leadership learns there's a new game in town. The, the advent of grace, God's salvation is going to all people. This is great inspiration, right? The past few weeks, it's just been inspiring, inspiring. No more sadness, boom! Well, we haven't had a public execution for a while, and the people are getting a little too comfortable, and this church is rising up, and, and they're getting much more powerful than I would prefer, so let's kill off one of their leaders. By the way, Herod Agrippa at this time is up in Jerusalem. He's at the capital. And there's a reason why. I'll get to that in a minute. So, what else happens? It's not enough just to kill James and behead him. Now what's interesting is, James gets beheaded, but Peter is staying. There is no there is no running this time from the persecution. And so then he grabs up Peter and he throws him in jail. And the way that the, the text reads is that he's in jail. He's under... Like massive security. This guy's not getting away. And when we're done with this festival, when we're done with Passover, I'm going to bring him out. Now remember that. Herod Agrippa, evil guy, God complex, that Herod Agrippa is basically adhering to the Jewish focus on Passover. Right? He is waiting to kill Peter because of the religious focus on Passover. So he's kind of acquiescing to the crowd of which Rome was tyrannically over. And you should be saying, why would that be happening? So Peter is in prison. Let's look at this Herodian family. Oh my goodness, what a bunch of losers. Okay, so we've got Herod the Great, he's up here. This guy, why do they call him Herod the Great? Because he got all the answers on Jeopardy. No, because he was a great builder. Back in that day, you established yourself, you established your legacy by building. And so he, he was the one that financed and built the Temple Mount and the temple itself, which some would say that was the eighth wonder of the world. It was incredible. And so it took, it took decades to build Temple Mount. And so it wasn't just that, it was Herodian that he built, he helped build Masada, he, he was into civil works, great structures which would solidify your ego, your legacy in history. You see how he's working here? So Herod the Great was nuts, just through and through. If he ever got a sense of any family member that might be looking at his job, he just killed him like that. If he didn't like someone in the family, killed him like that. Not only that, he killed the individual and then killed the sons and the daughters and put them on display to make sure everybody understood, don't cross me. Don't even give me a sniff of the idea that you're going to cross me. He was paranoid. It just kind of ran through the family. Now what happens here is, and you don't really see this on this, um, on this chart because they're just listing the key people, but up in this, this area here, you see the uh, uh, Miriamne one? You see Hasmonean princess? That comes from... Uh, John Harkanias, that comes from the Maccabees. That is a Jewish uh, high-ruling family, a royal family. And Herod's family married into that family. And you're sitting here saying, why would Herod Agrippa observe the Passover? You want to know why? It's because it is known in history by Josephus and Pliny that Herod observed all. Of the Jewish rites. And he was respected by the Jewish people because of that. Kind of fascinating, right? Is Here you have the tyranny of Rome, and yet what happens is he's up worshipping. Now here's the interesting about Agrippa. Agrippa uh, was stuck into a bad form of, of spending. And he wasn't really enjoyed by Caesar in Rome. As a matter of fact, he was a problem child. And so uh, he overspent what he made. And he had to keep being underwritten and underwritten. And then he kept getting moved around in his leadership roles. And unfortunately, he partnered with the wrong person. It eludes me right now, but I, I think it was Tiberius that he was backing. And that guy, or no, he was backing Claudius, Emperor Claudius. And Claudius didn't make it that round. The other candidate made it. And you know what they did in Rome when you back someone who didn't succeed? Yeah, Herod Agrippa went to prison. Herod Agrippa was kind of put away. He was a problem child. But here's the interesting thing that happens in history. Guess who comes to power? Claudius. He comes to power and now, guess who gets out of jail because he's going to be rewarded for his loyalty? Herod Agrippa. And not only that, he's rewarded as the Tetrarch over Palestine. And he's given all this power and it says in history that not only that happens, but Claudius gives him this huge gold chain to wear around his neck as a symbol of honor from Rome. And it says that, and here is the connection of what what happens within uh, Agrippa's mind as his Jewish sense appeals to him. He takes that immensely important gold chain that was a symbol because he had to wear a chain around his neck while in prison of iron. And that's why Claudius gave him one of gold, symbolic of his loyalty. And Herod Agrippa takes that chain and donates it into the treasury of the temple. Now, fascinatingly enough, Claudius wants to erect a statue of himself in the temple. And any good preterist knows this story. As a matter of fact, when you look at the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., when you look at all the suffering that happens and the persecution that happens to the people, when you look at James being beheaded, and all of the apostles being killed except for, by martyrdom except for John. When you look at what happens to the people in the scattering under the different revolts, the second Jewish revolt, which is about to happen under Herod Agrippa. On and on and on, you see what happens. And here you have a situation where predicted, where Christ says, and the man of lawlessness will set up an idol of himself In the temple. And that will be the abomination of desolation. Desolation. Claudius wants to set up an idol of himself. And Jerusalem is being renamed uh, Capitolina Jupiter or, or something like that. And Rome wants to make it theirs. And, and eventually, when the temple is sacked, they set up a temple over the spot, or they set up a, a, a pagan temple over the spot of the Jewish temple. Now, what's fascinating in all of this is that Agrippa convinces Claudius not to do that. Why? Why did I go to all this effort in this history lesson? To underline the fact that this man, Herod Agrippa, that guy right there, let's see how good he is. No, he's not a good guy. Right? That guy right there had really deep Jewish roots. Really deep Jewish roots. Because he knew about the prophecies out of Daniel about the setting up of the abomination of desolation. He knew what would happen and the revolt and the uprising that would happen. And by the way, once he was gone out of the way, the sacking under the Second Jewish Revolt uh, with Hadrian, uh, Trajan comes in and, and you can see some of this in relief work just outside the Colosseum. The moving of all the items that were in the temple from Jerusalem back to Rome. It's on the arch just outside of the Colosseum in Rome. And they set up an idol of Hadrian. Right there. And so many of the Jews believe that those words of Christ, the Jewish Christians, the words of Christ, that the end times were right then. Because the fulfillment was happening all the time. By the way, that is a discussion for later. My point to you today is this Herod really, really bought into his Jewish roots. Do you see what a, the point I'm trying to make? Why is that important? Let's look real quickly. Well, with the po- problem with politics, you've got Herod Agrippa, he had family issues, and James gets beheaded. Why? Because, first of all, the Herods were paranoid. And he needed to do something about this situation of the church rising up. They thought they had kind of dispersed it, now it's gaining ground again, it's gaining momentum in Jerusalem. And so Herod leans on the old family tradition, let's just kill off a few. Situation solved. And so he kills James, and what does the text say? It says, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That should have tripped something in your mind. Why would a Roman leader be interested in what pleased the Jews? Because this particular Roman leader had Jewish blood in him, and he really wanted to to earn the acceptance of the people. So here we go again. Why was Christ crucified? Christ was crucified because of our sin. But politically, why Christ was crucified is because the Jews wanted rid of Him. The church is thriving. We thought we persecuted it. It it spread out. But now they're coming back stronger than ever here in Jerusalem. Herod, what are you going to do about it? Bring James. Okay, he's dead. Oh, politically, I just scored a lot of points. And religiously, i got the people behind me. Let's go for one more. Let's go for the big dog. Bring me Peter. Mm, we're, in the, uh, we're now in the, the, the time of Passover. I can't actually do this right now. So put them under heavy, heavy guard. This is the problem with politics, my friends. And we face some of these very things today. There is persecution. So what happens? Peter's thrown into jail because it pleased the Jews. Now we have a context of understanding where we're going with all that. Let me just share with you, it is Missions Month, and so I want to talk about persecution. I want to share with you just one of the ministries that we support. It's called Indigenous Ministries International. And they're involved in the Middle East. They're involved in Iraq. They're involved in Jordan. They're involved in Egypt. And the focus of Indigenous Ministries International is to go in and and help the Christian church and establish pastors train pastors, give them the resources they need so that they can reach their communities and their people. And it's been an incredible uh, journey to see what's happened in Iraq. Uh, The leader of of indigenous ministries, John Cook, uh, has been over to Iraq so many times. I've seen video of where ISIS is on the next hill over and you can hear the explosions as he's in an area like Mosul. He's in an area uh, that's uh, close to where Nineveh was at the time, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Actually, I'll talk about it right now. That's exactly where John is. Now, you may say, well, is John a priest? No, he's not a priest. But I'll just tell you that how the world looks at, at religious leaders kind of matters, so he puts on this, this, uh, these garments because that's the understanding of the religious leader and how the religious leader should be dressed in that region of the world. or or parts of that region of the world. It's John's way of saying, just like Paul said, I will do anything within God's construct to reach all men with all things. And so that's why John's dressed like that in this moment. Those two individuals, uh, you know, I I, I don't really want to bring pictures of guns and things like that into our church service, but I want you to deal with the reality of this. These two men faced... ISIS coming into their area, which would be old Nineveh, just outside of Mosul, and eradicating family upon family upon family. And this is what's left of their church. This is the persecution that is actually happening. And you are supporting a ministry here through Concord Bible Church that's helping train, helping support, helping give relief work to those that are in Iraq as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're excited about that. Because even today, just how James and Peter and the church were persecuted by evil men, the same thing is happening worldwide right now. And so we need to be aware. Moving forward, this is the problem that we have with politics. Well, how does that work with prayer? Well, let's look at it with with this next passage, and I'm going to skip a couple verses. I want you to read it on your own later in life group, but we're going to fast forward to 12 through 16. So join me in looking at this. Now what's happened is Peter has been arrested, and let me give you the background. Peter is in jail, and he's shackled to two different soldiers. The shackles mysteriously just come off. Right? They just come off. Now we see other Scripture we're going to be reading soon where the same thing happens with Paul and Silas, and they stay there. And, and they're singing songs during an earthquake. Sometimes the Lord tells you to stay. Sometimes the Lord has opened the door for you to survive. And so, as our brothers and sisters in Iraq have to deal with the consequence of is the church going to stay and be established or are we going to survive? This is very real scripture to them. And so the shackles come off. And not only that, the gate swings open supernaturally. And Peter starts walking out. And then the guards don't see him at all. And then the outer gate opens. And then it, it just keeps going and going. And Peter gets to the end of that journey he finds himself outside this prison that has, what, four squads of soldiers. And he's standing outside the prison. And he says, surely the Lord's angel has come for a purpose. Well, let's see why that happened. This is where we get into the idea of the problem with prayer. So it says this starting in verse 12 when he realized this he went to the house of Mary the mother of John whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were what praying the church is gathered they're in Jerusalem James has been beheaded who knows who's next Peter is in jail and he's we're just the clock is ticking we're waiting for passover to be done and when the sun comes up Peter is going to be marched out into the square and he's going to be summarily executed. So what does the church do? They gather. They gather. They don't sit in their homes by themselves and pray. They gather and they come together corporately and they are praying. This is the picture we need to see today. And so it says, and they were praying. Verse 13, and when he knocked at the door of the gate, some of you know what's coming, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. There's your biblical name for all those who know someone named Rhoda. This is why they named their daughters Rhoda. And the poor girl always has to answer the door for the rest of her life. The servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. Don't you love that? In her joy, you see, when we pray for big things, and at the very inception we realize that the prayer has been answered, do you know what the response is? It's unmitigated joy. Could you use some of that? Yeah. Unmitigated joy. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in back into the inner room and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And it says that the church responded with weeping and praising God and they ripped their clothes and they all broke bread together and sang, just as I am. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Uh, okay, so far the church has gotten together. Good. Good. The church is praying. Good. They've got someone paying attention to answering the door. Maybe in faith. Good. And she comes back in she reports, you're not going to believe this. Peter is standing at the gate. And they said to her in such a very spiritual and eloquent way, you're nuts! Sit down and start praying that Peter would be released. Do we begin to understand how much we relate to the first century church? We are so fragile in our faith. We are so damaged in our prayer. That if someone were to tell us about a supernatural thing that would happen like this, we would say, you're nuts. But here's the beautiful thing. But sit down and pray that this would happen. You see, sometimes what happens is God answers in a super, supernatural way. Maybe what we would be praying is that at the last moment, Herod would stay his hand, right? And maybe Peter would just get a flogging. Maybe that's what we're praying for. Peter's like, thanks, thanks a lot. Maybe in our own minds, the problem with prayer is I may be praying for Peter to be released, but I can't get out of my head that we were praying that James would be spared, and he wasn't. I can rejoice that Kathy had this beautiful, supernatural recovery from a stroke. But I've got this tension that Sig Kerr has been in a hospital bed for three months, and he can barely put together two words. maybe that's why they said you're crazy sit down maybe we should cut them a little slack maybe we can see their humanness in the moment of this story and the frailty of their faith but my encouragement to us today is not to sit there too long we can understand it right can we relate to this we can Do you understand the beauty of going through the book of Acts? We are in the page. And if we were the only thing on the page, it would be a tragedy story. But the beauty is that God's in the page as well. And God is here as well. The same God that released Peter through four squads of soldiers, through multiple gates of a prison, the most highly protected prisoner in the history of Jerusalem, probably. And he just walks free. We can choose to focus on what didn't happen for James. Or we can choose to reconcile that with what did happen for Peter. And that's the three points I want to share with you. Number one, the problem with prayer is that prayer didn't save James. Prayer didn't save James. Let's turn to Luke if we can. So Luke 22, 41-43. You're going to get much more in depth with this story in your life groups. And so what's happening is that there is a healing here. Actually, that's going to be in your life groups. This is, this is the passage on Jesus praying that He would have this burden of going to the cross taken from Him. Has that ever twisted your mind? Because I have a lot of Scripture that says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, endured the shame of the cross, and so forth and so on, that He knew all along what His mission was. And that was to fulfill the will of His Father. But you get to the night before and what is Jesus praying? Well, let's look. Let's look. Verse 41. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Jesus prayed that He would not have to take our sins, and redeem them. We can't wrap our mind around that. Other than to say, Jesus knew what was going to happen, what He was going to go through, and we knew that there was part of Him, maybe it's His humanity, who knows? We we, we don't know explicitly. But we know there was a tension there for our Almighty Savior, but the beautiful words that finish that prayer are the secret to today's message. It's how you conquer over the problem of prayer. You see, it seems like Jesus' will is, I don't want to take this on. You see this, right? Now, if He had stayed in that will, His own plan, let's back it up a second. Jesus and the disciples are walking through the the Judean um, desert and there's a discussion He's saying that I must go and in three days um, be sacrificed. And Peter, God bless that guy, stands up and yells, may it not be so. I will give my life. This wouldn't happen. And Jesus says to Peter, Bro, you my BFF. Thanks for standing up and having my back. Way to go! Right? That's awesome! Yeah, I want this guy in my corner. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, Jesus. Now, hang on. Those words hurt. I'm, I just got your back. And you just said I... I I've got Satan's agenda, not mine. Yep. This starts to unlock our problem with prayer. It starts to answer what we're looking at here. Now let's transition back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Praying so desperately about this that what happens is he's bleeding, he's sweating blood. The next words in Jesus' prayer Save you. Not my will, but Father, your will be done. Can I just help us take this grandiose leap into understanding the problem with prayer? Is most of the time that problem is surrounded around our will. Our will would be that Sig is not suffering here in a, in a bed, but he would be walking and talking just like Kathy. Our will would be that... Um, I'm not going to get his name right. Nabil Khourishi? It is Nabil. Nabil Khourishi passed away from cancer this past week. Now, I know someone that just got diagnosed with Stage four terminal cancer. And it's my intention, especially from learning out of Acts, it's my intention to go pray for, over this individual and pray for miraculous healing. And this week I hear about, well, Nabil Kurishi had millions praying for him. And yet he succumbed to cancer. Do you see how I'm inserted into this story? I have a choice, just like you have a choice, to stop praying to lose my faith because Nabil who was being prayed for by millions still succumbed to cancer so what makes this other individual that i care for so special that god would reach out to them they can't be any more special than Nabil Kourishi. because the thing i have to learn in my prayers is not my will but yours And it requires a complete reset of how I look at the world and how I look at my life. And if I get that figured out under God's economy, then I'm going to keep praying. And something like what happened with Peter is going to happen. And the real challenge for us in faith, in faith informing our prayers, is what? In spite of the dire circumstances, In spite of things maybe not turning out the way we would have preferred. Just like Christ. What would Christ have preferred? But there was a greater plan at work. And ultimately, God was honored. Christ was exalted. We have salvation. If it had gone Peter's way, it wouldn't have gone so well for you and I. Prayer caused doubt within the church. I really want to implore us this morning that as we move forward in this effort of prayer that we not lose track of faith in prayer. That just because the very things that we're praying for we may be praying for a James situation and it, it doesn't come to fruition like we want. It doesn't mean that God wasn't in that. It doesn't mean that God wasn't paying attention to our prayers. It doesn't mean that we were ignored. It means that we just simply need to pray for those things to the best of our ability in understanding who God is and what God would desire and leave the results. Remember, the point is, the problem with prayer is trusting. And so if it doesn't necessarily play out the way we were praying, that doesn't mean we evoke our clause to pull back on our faith and trust in God. At that moment, we simply say, well, I have to trust in God that that was God's will. But I'm going to continue to pray in faith because what happened to Peter happened as a result of the church praying. Prayer loosens the power of heaven. It loosens the power of heaven. And one of the ways that we are constantly challenged to uh, abdicate this power, surrender this power, not believe in the power of heaven, is to focus continually on the things that just fall apart. And stop trusting in God who has the ability to do all, change all. But He has a plan. He has a plan. And hopefully I've helped us understand that with the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's other passages here that you're going to see in life groups. I just keep pounding that for a good reason. Let's wrap up today with this last point. And that is the power of prayer. And so here's Matthew 17, 8-20. Now what's interesting, and I want you to turn there in your Scriptures, is that I give this last bit of instruction because there's a point that I want to make here that's kind of fascinating. It says, "...and Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? They had done this in the past, but in this situation, they failed miserably." Right? He said to them, because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, what verse is that? Verse 20. Could somebody read verse 21? Is that the end of the chapter? Are you in Matthew? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's kind of fascinating. What do you got, John? Wow. What interpretation, what's, what, which one do you have? What Bible translation are you reading? Ah, there you go. There you go. I'm going to give you a real quick lesson. I probably shouldn't cuz, you know, I famously go way long. Promise to get you out for dinner. So, I'm going to get myself in trouble with a bunch of King James people. Here's the reality of the King James translation is that it was taken from the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate had only so many manuscripts that it was taken from. Accurate manuscripts, okay? But it had a very small selection. Do you know what's happened with modern archaeology? We have discovered thousands of manuscripts that predate the ones that were written which the Latin Vulgate was translated off of. Here's the amazing thing about that. You would think as you discover more and more manuscripts, the message is going to get diluted. The message is going to be different. The message it's not now here is why how many of you in your translations go to verse 22 off of verse 20 raise your hand yeah the majority of you we should have this on the history channel the missing verse right here is why that verse is missing in most translations in Matthew is because most of the earliest manuscripts that we have now found, not the ones that the Vulgate was translated off of, but the earlier manuscripts don't have that verse. And the understanding is that the scribes borrowed from Mark's account, Mark 9:29, which is the same story and Mark does use those words. This cannot happen without prayer and fasting. As a matter of fact, the word and fasting in the Mark 9.29 doesn't exist, but it's understood that within Hebraic understanding that those words stayed together. The implication of this phraseology was that it it would stay together. So this is where people want to come and attack Scripture and say, oh, you've got all these contradictions. Mark 9.29 says this, and and this one doesn't. It's not a contradiction. It's has to do with the reliability of what we find and when jesus says just because matthew doesn't record the whole sentence peter through the scribe mark does record the whole sentence just a little fascinating thing on textual criticism that was for free so the power of prayer so we see in this story why did we go there why did we go to matthew because he's talking about the connection between faith and prayer The disciples fail in doing this and what does Jesus say? You needed to be prayed up on this. And you weren't. And part of the aspect of prayer, folks, is that we might pray that we get good weather for our vacation. That's fine. Pray that. But just understand, there's probably a farmer who desperately needs it to rain. I don't know why you're vacationing in the heartland. There's really nothing there, but uh, but just understand, you know, well, there, there's a problem as we gather with Christian football teams this time of year that one team is praying that they win, well, the other team, you know, the obvious conundrum. The challenge here is that Jesus is saying, do not pray without faith. So, what is the power of prayer? We learn about it. That the, de- the, 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 the disciples are able to cast out demons, Jesus is able to cast out demons Because of prayer that is shrouded. That it is poured out with faith. Faithless prayer is powerless. Prayer and faith moves mountains. Reckless prayer is powerless. Pray in God's will and you'll move mountains. But the point I want to leave with you today is this. Spirit-filled prayer brings union results and confidence in the power of Jesus Christ. We see this with the release of Peter. This morning as I close, I want to leave you with these thoughts. So we started with this idea. The problem with prayer is that it requires trust and recognition that ultimately we aren't in control. Praise God we're not in control. But here's, a, here's the lasting thought. The power of prayer is recognizing that our control is limited, but Jesus' power is what? Limitless. It's limitless. I want to encourage you this past Wednesday, teenagers and junior hires from all over this nation gathered around six thirty, seven a.m. at their flagpoles and prayed for this nation. They didn't pray in their beds. Well, pr- some probably did pray in their beds. I don't know. But they got up early and they went to the flagpoles to pray for the nation. We have a prayer meeting next Sunday night. My encouragement to you is this. Why don't we gather together? Together in that power of prayer. And take that lesson from the early church. Take that lesson from the the teens of our nation that gathered this past Wednesday. And let's gather together for prayer and see what God does. And let's pray in faith. For radical change to happen. For prisoners to be set free. Amen? Amen. We're going to continue in worship this morning with the Lord's table. I'm going to pray uh, over the message now and then have Brad come and the men prepare. um, And Brad will give us some encouragement um, concerning the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to You Just like that early church gathered together. And we we ask that we would have the discipline to do what we know is right. And that we do so understanding that we have to pray God's will. That we would never lose faith or trust that you're in control. And that, Father, yes, there will be things that we pray for that don't turn out necessarily the way that we would like to see them happen. Let that not steal away our faith to go ahead and continue to pray for great things to happen. Even marginal things to happen. Thank You, Father, that this church believes in prayer, that we hold to it tightly, and that we have a Father in Heaven who gives us access through the throne of grace by His Son, Jesus Christ, and through prayer by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be with us in our time of continued worship around the Lord's table. To you be the glory, Father. Amen.